Welcome, friends, to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. Uh, This week, we are off. We are going to be releasing another From the Vault episode, which is a former Patreon exclusive from, I think, the early months of 2020, if my my dates are correct. Uh, But we're going to be putting that out into the main feed. It is The Last Man on Earth which I'm sure you know because you clicked on the title, (laughs) Um, which is a Vincent Price uh, adaptation of I Am Legend. If I remember correctly, it's more closely adapted from the original work Mm. because I think the the Will Smith I Am Legend kind of deviated a lot. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I know this was one where you educated me a lot on like who Vincent Price was and why he's important to horror because I did not know a, a lot about him, but I know now that he is quite an important figure. Yeah, legend really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was an interesting movie. I, I know it's like public domain. I think you can just watch it on YouTube. Uh, so if you haven't seen it and you're curious, you could check it out. Um, otherwise, I think we have a pretty good conversation about it. Um, oh, since we're talking I Am Legend, I'll throw out that I did read that there's a rumor going around about the rights to I Am Legend, I guess, being used or I forget what it was. Warner Brothers has like expressed interest in doing something with I Am Legend, whether that's a sequel or a series adaptation. I think it's unknown. I guess uh, people have been speculating about this for a while because the 2007 adaptation uh, nearly topped $600 million at the global box office. So people have said, like, it's kind of bizarre that it didn't get a sequel considering how well it did. It's Will Smith, you know, at the height of his powers, I think, too. And he's continuing. He kind of has come in waves and I think we're back on top of another Will Smith wave right now. I think I would be more interested in a TV show change up, try try again, but but you know, really expand and kind of almost do a more inspired by rather than a faithful because I think it's been done enough times now <laughs> um, where I think you can do something really different with it now. But it, it's a cool IP and I think uh, it could be interesting, especially if you lean more into the vampire stuff than the zombie stuff because I think we are a little bit sick of zombies these days. Um, I don't know. I'm curious, though. Yeah. That's something we'll definitely keep an eye out for. I think that this will be a good representation of what this Vincent Price adaptation was like. And if you like the sound of this, uh, we are going to be recording another bonus episode. We do them monthly. We're about to record this month's. We uh, watched the Wheel of Time Winter Dragon pilot uh, that came out a little while ago. We haven't even talked about it yet, so we're, but we're going to. Um, and that'll be this month's Patreon episode. So if, you, if you'd if you like to get the new one and hear us talk about that, uh, check our Patreon out. And there's all kinds of episodes like the one you're about to hear on there that have not been released yet. All right. Well, enjoy this previously unreleased From the Vault episode. We are watching, or we did watch, The Last Man on Earth which was a 1964 adaptation of I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, uh, something we covered on the main podcast pretty recently. Uh, This is an old black-and-white movie that uh, is public domain, so you can watch it on YouTube if you want to check it out. Um, You also can skip around on it if you don't feel like watching the whole thing just to see, kind of get a taste for what we're talking about. Otherwise, we're just going to describe it, so enjoy. Uh, I think this was a cool kind of piece of of horror history. Um, Vincent Price, the main actor, is kind of a legend within horror movies, and just honestly, he's just had a he had an extremely prolific career that you know spanned decades and decades and decades. So it was cool to kind of dig into this uh, '60s 
pre Night of the Living Dead sort of zombie vampire movie. Yeah, I actually had, I looked it up because I was curious uh, where it fell, and I saw that Night of the Living Dead came out four years later. Um, so I was a little shocked to see that because these are zombies, you know. I mean, they're they're mm-hmm. they're kind of vampiric, I guess, but they behave like zombies. They look kind of like zombies. Um, so yeah, as far as like horror cinema history, I think this is kind of an important movie. Um, but on the other hand, it, I, I don't know that it's that good. Um, I, I struggle a little bit with older movies because there's a lot of things that are incredibly dated that um, were were commonplace for the time, but um, are tough for me as a modern viewer. Um, I don't know. I feel like you watch a lot more older films than I do, especially like black and white films. You've probably seen a lot more than I have. How does this stack up to other movies of this era? Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, with modern sensibilities, it's it's tough with, with movies like this sometimes because pacing was different in the 60s. Um, and, you know, the late 60s is a different is a different ball game than the early 60s. Like you you're, you're at a time when it's uh, movie studios and movies in general are made a certain way. Um, performances, there's a certain like drama to their performances and um like I can, I can. That's why I can understand like someone who who doesn't watch a lot of older films. I I think part of it for me was I watched a lot growing up too, so mm-hmm. it was like kind of ingrained in me early on. And I think it's like you you kind of have to you don't have to separate the two, but it is very clearly within its own sort of era. Yeah. It's a movie of its era. I don't think um, you know, it's it's tough because I feel like there was a there was a want to to do a lot of narration and make sure that everybody was following along with everything that was going on in the movie. Yeah. Um, and make sure that everything was very well, um, sort of gestured so that people could understand like what was happening. And there's not, it's not a ton of like subtlety to, to the filmmaking here. It's, it's kind of in the performance of their subtlety, you know, it's, it's up to the actor to kind of, to kind of carry the movie. Well, and I was looking and apparently there was a remaster released and that was, I think, what I watched because it was widescreen. It looked pretty clear, um, (laughs) especially for a 60s film. And then I had to remind myself, like, most people aren't watching this on a modern television. You know, at the time you were watching on a little, you know, 60s television and things. So there was a lot of times where stuff just looked really hokey or you could tell something was a mannequin or that even sometimes the acting just looked a little off. And I'm like, how much mm-hmm. of this is because I can see everything and they weren't, re- it wasn't really intended to be viewed with such like crystal clear vision that we get nowadays. Yeah, I will say like, that's the advantage to the fact that everything was shot on film for a long time because film is film, like film yeah. projected is always going to look like film. So it, it's pretty clear. And that's why like, if you, you know, there's that era of movie making where we went from like things being shot on physical film into the sort of the digital era and the early digital movies. Like if you look at them now, you can tell that it's just like, doesn't, it, it's harder to look at because it's just not the, it's not film quality and it's not our current like digital mm. um, quality. So it, it's like, that, that is an advantage. Cause if you go look at, you know, there's a lot of like sports documentaries or just even these, these older movies, anything shot on film, that's why they're able to remaster them and make them look as crystal clear as they do even, even today. Yeah, um, which was pretty amazing. I, so I'm curious about this Vincent Price guy. Um, you said he's sort of a horror legend. I assume I have heard of some of the things that he has been in, but I actually don't know off the top of my head, uh, which, you know, <laughs> maybe that makes me a fool. Well, but, uh, you know, I, maybe, I'll embrace it. So tell me a little bit about Vincent Price. 
So Vincent Price, I think the movie specifically that you and I, the first time I saw him for sure, was uh, he was the inventor in Edward Scissorhands. It's an elderly Vincent Price. Oh, wow. I, have, I haven't seen that movie in a long fucking time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that was the 90s. That was early 90s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to just to go back into into the history of him, he he had been he was working in like the 30s and 40s. And I think he started to really break out in the 50s when he when he started to work on a lot of these horror films. He worked with Roger Corman was a huge thing for him. Uh, Vincent Price became almost synonymous with Edgar Allan Poe because Roger Corman and, and Vincent Price adapted, I would say, like 10 Edgar Allan Poe stories into films. Oh, cool. We had um, The Raven, Mask of the Red Death, Pit in the Pendulum, Tales of Tales of Terror, which is like an anthology, um, The Haunted Palace. It's, it's so many. Um, and that honestly, that was a little bit later. Some of the some of the other things that he was things that you have seen the remake for i know for a fact the originals uh he was in the original house the house on haunted hill okay he was in the original house of wax Mm -hmm. and he was in the original the fly oh wow i didn't know there was a wait a minute so (laughs) how old is the fly short story i'm confused now was it was it adapted from the same story that the later fly was adapted from it must be right I, i believe so yeah the fly, the original fly was like 1950 something. Uh, and then, you know, Cronenberg re- remade it in like 1980, I believe. Okay. So the original fly short story was published in 1957. Uh, and its first film adaptation, I think, was in 1958. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So yeah, it came out in 1957. A year later, they made a film for it. Starring Vincent Price. Okay. Yeah. That's the one you're talking about. That's pretty amazing. You know, monster movies of the time. I think he was he was in um, the Invisible Man Returns. A lot of these like horror icons would they would continue to be in like Frank right. Bride of Frankenstein, like all these Dracula movies. Um, he was in in the Invisible Man Returns. He was in The Fly, and then he was in I believe The Fly Returns. There's like a sequel to The Fly. Oh, okay, interesting. And uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it, the legacy of this guy is unbelievable. He he was like I said, he he really was synonymous. Like any any sort of horror anthologies or um, any any creepy stories that needed narration like he was a definitely go-to mm. um, to, to he has a very distinct voice very distinct look to him as well yeah you can tell why that he would do well in horror um, and then, you know people I was looking at lists of, of what people consider his best performances and this this was not on necessarily the list of his best performances but yeah, he was by that. himself in this movie um, so I have to give him credit for that the fact that he there was no nothing but his performance to prop up this movie for a lot um, of it, and I yeah. think it was I think it was pretty successful. It was nice when he started to get some other actors to interact with. <laughs> it was a nice yeah. kind of, oh, okay. Because it felt like a weird, I don't know. It feels, it feels like a very bizarre film early on because it's a lot of voiceover of him like narrating everything he's doing on screen and he's alone mm-hmm. for a while. And it wasn't until finally he started getting some flashbacks and him interacting with his family and some other characters that it started to feel more like, I don't know, a normal movie. <laughs> right. I will, early on, it was, I was like, oh, wow. So we're doing like, beat for beat every action that would happen in the in the book is going to yeah. be in this film huh? very faithful for the most part super faithful yeah yeah uh so i do have to say uh it, you know all props to the guy but he just isn't a very good robert neville or robert something else he, they changed morgan, his last name i think morgan yeah, robert, robert morgan, morgan in this film um i i he doesn't fit the role to me 
It feels like he was miscast. Um, I also read a quote later from Matheson who said as much. Um, Mm -hmm. Seems like he had a lot of respect for Price, but also thought he didn't really fit the role. Um, Did you read at all about the production of this film? Because I actually found some of this stuff, and I don't know if you saw it, but it's pretty interesting. I I read a little bit, but I'd love to hear what you found. So in particular, some of the stuff I found was about Matheson. Um, He later said that the film was the most faithful adaptation of his book, which I agree with. Uh, But he also called the result, quote, inept and used a pen name for his screenplay because he he wrote the screenplay for this movie. He later said that he thought Harrison Ford as star and George Miller as director would have been the ideal creative combination. (laughs) Which, okay, sure. In the 50s? No, he, it not, said he later said he later said so I, I think he's just saying for an adaptation in general because I assume. I, I assume yeah at that point the Omega Man the other the other adaptation of this work had come out and he was like all right to get yeah. the perfect duo it would be George Miller and Harrison Ford which I mean come on that'd be awesome <laughs> yeah makes sense um, so um, among the film's creators Price uh, quote had a certain fondness for the film but felt it was be- and felt it was better than Omega Man uh, Richard Matheson uh, was unhappy with the results uh, to keep receiving residual income, he had to be credited, so he used the name Logan Swanson, which was a combination of his wife's mother's maiden name and his mother's maiden name. Uh, Matheson said, I was disappointed in the film, even though they more or less followed my story. I think Vincent Price, whom I love and every one of his pictures that I wrote, was miscast. Uh, yeah. I also felt that the direction was kind of poor. I just didn't care for it. So I think that's interesting. I I was looking and it looks like it it was it was not loved when it came out, but has since mm-hmm. gone on to be respected as sort of uh, groundbreaking. I think, and, and sort of uh, you know ahead of its time in some ways. Right. Um. It was for, it was filmed in Rome for a fairly low budget. Um. I was also seeing, which I think kind of shows in some of these scenes. Um. Although not terrible, it looked okay, especially for you know its era. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, they, they, the movie has an interesting sort of tale to it because it is, um, I feel like people didn't really like it that much at the time, but it's like through the lens of time, we're looking back at it and giving it like bonus points for being yeah. innovative. Yeah, I think I, I'm not running, I'm not rushing out to tell everybody to watch this is, is yeah. I'll definitely say that. But knowing, knowing a lot about Vincent Price, knowing about this, this is a pre George Romero, Night of the Living Dead era of, of like creatures in a, in a film like this, it, it ha- you have to look at it and just think like how, how it could have shaped. Cause I have a feeling Romero knew this story. I am legend in some way. Had to have known it, and maybe even saw this movie and was influenced. No, he did. The, the... We we talked we talked about that in our our coverage. He had said right. that he, he was influenced by it. Yeah, but and maybe even saw this movie and, for, have, yeah, and like realized that like he liked the slow moving sort of zombie nature of these of these creatures. I think I think it's also, you know, you have somebody like Vincent Price who is just a legend in film, and you wanna you wanna see everything he ever did. This is this is definitely a little a little you know section of what he did and right. Um, it's you know like i said i'm not rushing out to tell everybody about it but if you're like a vincent price fan if you want to put this in like historical horror film context i think it's definitely worth checking out yeah and uh if you want to see what a fairly faithful representation might look like this is as close as we get um as far as like beat for beat for the novel there's a couple of changes at the end um but i mean for the most part it's pretty dang close um so there is one one uh thing that kept happening in this movie and it, it feels so 60s or black and white film to me. I don't know what it is, but 
What was the obsession with having the main male character grab a woman by the shoulders and shake her and be like, yeah. oh, I'm going to tell you something. And then her be like, oh, oh. like, I don't know what is happening, but it's, I feel like it's such a 60s and 50s thing. Like I've seen it so many times. They they keep going back to the well in this movie. <laughs> they yeah. keep doing it over and over. He'll just grab her by the shoulders and shake her. Uh, it's so weird. It's very like film noir. I would definitely say like 40s and 50s. Like, yeah. come here, woman, and listen to me. And and yeah. like, you, don't you see? It's like I'm not gonna hit you, but I am gonna shake you. Like, cause I gotta shake some sense it's into you. Dramatic, or and it's yeah. like dramatic. Very like without without physical like hitting it's yeah. like as much as you could do it's like, like oh he's grabbing her, of, like, yeah. physical aggression and but uh, also the way that the women react is is always the same is the other thing that right. makes it really weird it's always very like loose and they're just trying to like look away and they're like oh right i, I don't know like i was saying weird. before i think i think a lot of early film was super influenced by theater and i think like yeah, over, over dramatic yeah. things that ha- that you see in early films i think could probably it's kind of it's like it was done that way for a long time and until somebody breaks the mold that's kind of how it's done so a lot of times when i see any of that sort of any of the stuff that you would see today and just be like that was really weird i you have to <laughs> yeah. I, I always assume like these are probably stage trained actors that are sort of leaning on those because a lot of the stuff that a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie felt like an actor on a stage like it it, it was stagey in some ways in the way he would deliver his lines, um, which I, I can see that maybe coming down to the direction, like uh, Matheson pointed out, because it seemed right. like that's what the director wanted was sort of this stagey feel. Um, because, yeah, I mean, just he, he was very over the top. It didn't feel like authentic reactions that a human would have a lot of the times. It, mm-hmm. it, it felt very directed and, and, yeah, I don't know, like a performance, I guess. And, and it's never yeah. good when, it, when, it, when you're, you're very aware that you're watching a performance. You know, mm-hmm. you don't get to suspend that disbelief at all. So, um, talking about miscast, Vincent Price being potentially miscast, do you, do you think that you, so the sort of survivor sense of him that you, you didn't buy and I didn't buy as well, but I was wondering how you felt about him, the scientist in the, in the lab. Like, oh yeah. No, that was the best. He works as a scientist, but he doesn't work as this like gruff survivalist who is out there staking people every day and has become right. like this horror that people are afraid of because he's he's out there killing all you know not people the, the the other vampire whatever you would call them people who are like have been infected but are treating it um they're all terrified of him and i'm like really this guy <laughs> and right. he just doesn't seem like uh he's very frightening and there are times where like um was it ruth she like runs away from him and he goes running after her and i was like she could easily get away from him this guy's not running very fast yeah like he's doing kind of like a slow jog not athletic at all clearly a drinker yeah he's like (laughs) he's not like exercising every day or anything well he's also like super thin like this guy's not built at all he's not imposing Mm -hmm. in any way Uh, you know he yeah so i could see like he would work as like a vampire or a creature um he would work as uh you know like you said, a, a scientist or um, I can just see lots of roles. A lot of his see- roles are like psychological, like in like House on Haunted Hill. It's like the, the idea of someone inviting everyone to the house yeah. and he's kind of a spooky overseer, like kind of guy, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like he's, he's not going to be like physically doing stuff, but he's creepy. Right. Yeah. His voice sounds like that. It doesn't sound like what I would expect Robert Neville to sound like uh, just yeah. personally. So, so I can see some of the, some of the issues with that. Um, you know, cropping up, but, uh, what, what were your thoughts on the film in general? I feel like I've hit you with a bunch of mine, but I want to know what you thought of it. I mean, I think, I think you're hitting on a lot of what I, what I was feeling. I think I, 
I think I appreciated the movie a little more just because I realized going in like this is a Vincent Price film that I'd never seen. So I was I was excited to see that. I do. I, there were a few times where I was like, wow, this isn't his best. Um, but mm-hmm. it was, you know, and with the cultural context of what's going on right now, like we talked about yeah. so many times with in our in our main feed episode, it was it was it's just tough to think like this stuff is really going on right now. And, you know, the idea that like we're hunkered down in our homes and you know we we have to venture out sometimes for supplies and like like these are these are things that we're like we're living through a little bit so even for a movie that came out in the 60s to and you know the story predicted it but just just to have watch a movie of of something that's seemingly predicting a a viral outbreak in in the same you know maybe a more much more severe way but it's something that we can draw parallels to what's going on right now. Absolutely. It's like, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it, you know? It's, the, the, the headline they were looking at was, like, European virus spread on the wind or something, which, like, you always hear about, like, how airborne something is. And, um, I mean, clearly they, don't, they didn't understand viruses as well back then, but they, you know, I was surprised by how much it seems like they, you know, they did understand. He's a scientist. He's looking at it under a microscope and talking about the virus. Um so again, you get that modern horror, which we talked about on our main coverage. This is like one of the first modern horror novels, and it's 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 linked to science so closely, which I think is one of the things that makes it enduring. Um, and I can see Price being cast for that scientist part of the character, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe they just were happy they could get a big name at the time, so they went with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, massive name in horror, for sure. Also, this guy reminds me a little bit of my grandfather, and I don't know why. It's not really in like his mannerisms or something, but I think just just like the way he dresses, and when they're at the garden party, like there's he's very that generation, I guess. I guess my grandfather would be approximately this generation, and it feels strongly. Maybe actually this guy's probably a little older, but still. I felt it was you know I felt it was so of the time that he was like still kind of even though it was like all tattered and like sort of open, he was still like tucking in his shirt with a yeah. belt, and he had the suit on and everything. Like he's still like walking out with a suit on in this survival scenario felt definitely very of that era so uh we got to talk about the action sequence <laughs> that occurs at the end of this movie yeah uh not expecting it at all uh he goes on the run from these these vampire the new order of vampires who are not mindless but are are like somewhat semi-treating themselves that ruth was a part of he goes on the run and he goes to like this i don't know is it, is it his work is it he goes somewhere that has an armory he breaks into it and he starts he gets a bunch of guns and then he starts throwing like smoke bombs or something and it's so silly he's like throwing them directly at his own feet half the time and then there's like yeah. a tiny explosion with a little bit of smoke and then he runs off and then people walk out and act like they can't see him even though you can clearly see him <laughs> All these vampire zombies that are chasing after him, they're all like militarized and stuff. They all have like machine guns and they're in like Jeeps. Yeah. And then they and then so they like weird. get into the smoke, the like thin the thin veil of smoke and they just start light like they just start opening fire with their machine guns like into yeah. the smoke. God, I was not expecting this movie to have this sequence, man. There's there's yeah. you know, they're firing blanks or, or something, it seems like. They're firing something. And they're they're throwing smoke bombs and um Vincent Price is like doing his slow moving, non athletic action hero routine it's very weird <laughs> and mm-hmm. seeing him firing guns and stuff i don't know I, I it was a bizarre sequence and then it ends with him getting surrounded and like speared and then he goes down and he's and the uh, ruth goes up to him and he and he says something about uh how he's a legend now because I, I guess everyone's so afraid of him it seems like again they twist sort of the way that matheson intended the, the end of this movie that's actually go. what i what i was going to bring up is the 
you know, I think the, f- changing it from the book to have him be a scientist in the first place, again, is a is a change that makes, I think it's shorter, you know, it's a shorter story to tell, which fits better for the film. But ha- I, I really feel like something that I that I really reacted well to in the story was the fact that he wasn't a scientist, that he had to teach himself all these things um, to understand bacteria, to understand viruses, to understand all of the things that he needed to in order to start to try to make a make a cure and in this mm-hmm. he just had he was just like yeah i'm a scientist and i made the cure for my blood yeah and uh gives a transfusion ruth. and and quote unquote cures ruth um which i i guess i don't really know where that goes narratively she's cured and then she doesn't believe that it'll work but then she kind of rejoins her society well i think um, at the end of the at the end when she's like walking it says the end and she's like walking away mm-hmm. from all of the all of those i think it's we're supposed to think that she has been cured and she's now a human being again okay and she's realizing that like the only safe thing to do is is just like walk up to the baby and sort of say like it's gonna be okay and all that stuff and and still uh make everyone think that she's a part of their society and that she's still like a vampire and i don't know if that's like something she could be somehow found out when when it's clear that she's not but why were all the women and children there at the end why do they yeah, all start like walking after him? It was like a, church, like a church, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not sure. But he <laughs> had to die in a church because like that's so the, the symbolism, I'm assuming. And he was like speared and like fell. He had like sort of like a uh, Julius Caesar moment, like on the stairs. Yeah, it felt like like yeah. not 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 quite being betrayed or anything like that. But he's like, you know, he's like f- sprawled out on the stairs with like a spear through him. Kind of just saying like he's the last the last man and they were all freaks and everything for being being uh, mutations and all that. So there was a uh, Latin phrase above his head at the very end, um, which I'm trying to find the exact uh, translation of because I thought it was notable. Um, it looks like it's kind of a churchy thing spoken by Jesus Christo himself. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it says uh, the way and the truth and the life. So what did you make of that? Um, that phrase because it's very prominently over top of him as he's giving his final speech and he gets killed is he is, is that I mean it seems like it's branding him maybe as a martyr he's speaking yeah, truth right he's like a martyr for the human race this is the end of days for for that for that sort of yeah for their time in the last human in the, yeah yeah because he says the name of the movie right like as he's dying he's like I was the last man on earth and then he dies or something <laughs> or the last right. man alive says something to that effect um yeah i don't know it seems like it was trying to go for something that i guess kind of worked but mostly didn't (laughs) to me yeah i mean i think it's clear that with matheson writing the screenplay and then not actually wanting his name associated with it and saying later that he felt the direction you know the direction kind of let him down and just didn't really live up to the story that he wanted is you know, if we've read the story, we've seen multiple versions of it now, we can kind of see that this isn't exactly like the perfect, um, you know, it hasn't been pulled off to the point that we're like, oh, wow, this is, this is, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very accurate depiction. It's a very accurate, um, sort of faithful adaptation, but at the same time, it doesn't get to like the core of, or the, it doesn't hit as hard as the story did in the novel. Um, Okay. Yeah. And then again, and, 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 you know, I, I didn't think that the novel was like, absolutely 100 percent amazing in every way mm-hmm. but i do think that it had a little more sort of subtext and, and substance there compared to this this film so we have a little time here at the end of the episode i was kind of i thought it might be fun to talk about like now that we've seen a few adaptations of this of this 
novel. What, what maybe what was some of your favorite choices we've seen? Um, and then like, if you were going to try and adapt this yourself, what do you think are like the core things that would, you'd want to have in your adaptation versus the things that you think you could change to, to either improve it or to work better in film? I know I'm hitting you off the, out of the, yeah. out of the blue here, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough because I think I am legend. The film that we watched had a lot of good things in it. As we, sure. as we noted, I think, I think you have sort of, you've, you fix the creatures and, and make it less of, um, maybe make it a little more faithful to Matheson's original material and not have them be sort of the generic zombie, like sort of fast moving zombie creatures. Um, so intel more intelligent creatures. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, in the story, they're more intelligent. The, you know, the speaking would be tough to pull off to make believable in like yeah. a modern sensibility. See, way, I like but... that. I, I think I'm I'm at this point in day and age, I think I'm back around to wanting like an intelligent, fast moving monster. Um, I, I actually really liked the idea when I first when I first read the novel um, of these vampires taunting him. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do believe that you would have to do a lot more to sell me on him being able to keep them out of his house. So I'd like to see a more heavily fortified position, um, whether it's even a house or something else. I don't know. Um, so but, you didn't feel like I Am Legend had enough of like a bunker feel? Like you didn't think that it was like feasible in like because he's living in the middle of like New you're York. You're talking City. about the movie in the movie, yeah, yeah. So the movie, it, it was okay because they didn't. It felt like they didn't know he was there, and those ones weren't as intelligent. I'm saying right. I like the more intelligent version, but the more intelligence you grant to the monster, the less I will buy that they're being kept out by a big door or, you know what I mean? Or some garlic strung on a hook. Like they're going to find yeah, smart ways yeah. to get around it. So, so I, I, you, I feel like you'd have to raise the level of defense, defensiveness, but I think that could be cool, right? Like uh, actually make it like a really clever way to keep them out. Um, but yeah, I like the idea of these vampires. I don't know. I think that to me is is something that's lost in all these adaptations where they become much more like zombies. Yeah, I think the you know this movie did not do a great job of showing like a, a feasible bunker that like that the yeah, creatures no, are not at all. <laughs> the the windows like there the, there's like four boards per window and like you yeah. could reach your entire body through it if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Um. He basically just chops out of the fact that they're like animals and they can't figure it out and they can't. Well, get they're in. dumb. He says they're dumb and slow moving, which which helped a little bit because the couple of times he fought them, he'd wade into a group of about 15 of them and just kind of shove them over and then run yeah. past. And it looks so silly. And I was right. like, are these supposed to be dangerous? Because they don't seem dangerous to me right now. Yeah. I, I, so my thing with like the super fast moving, like almost like, like your world war Z type zombie, like horde right. waves. Of yeah. I don't stuff, like, like that either. It, that, that becomes too much for me as well. So, you know, and that's not saying like anything against World War Z necessarily. I'm just saying like that idea to always. Yeah. To, I don't know that's necessarily the you, best you, version. You probably won't be surprised to hear that that is a change from the uh, novel of World War Z. They, that was that was a film invention. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that because I hadn't read the book. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to that one eventually one day. It's actually a pretty fascinating uh, zombie novel. So not to mm-hmm. derail us, but I, I you know I'm excited to cover that at some point with you. I do think there's like a happy like a happy medium here somewhere. I think right. that you can you can have them be intelligent and fast enough and smart enough to make them you know to to build tension and to make them seem actually intimidating uh while also you know like you said kind of leaning into the bunker aspects and right yeah, you can't go too intelligence i I agree because like you can't have a you can't have like 
you know, uh, what's his name? Vampire Bill from <laughs> True Blood out there. Like, you can't have somebody right. like that. Like, like just a person. You know what I mean? Like, you can't have that kind of vampire. Um, so I still think you got to make it monstrous. Um, and some of that humanity has to be gone. And some, and definitely a little bit more of that, like, primal drive, to, you know, to consume. Um, but I love the idea of them being able to talk and and talk to each other and talk to talk to our protagonist um i think that makes it makes for some really interesting tension and it can also just give them character so that you can lean well, that's into the that thing well. right because otherwise they're just this monolith of of just like the baddies rather right. than like have some having some character to them yeah because then you mm-hmm. then you take the neighbor character and you you can really develop him into something interesting yeah that's and i i think the other thing that i really liked like i talked about is uh, this movie that we just watched, The Last Man on Earth, t- spent a lot of time in flashback to give us a lot, like honestly a huge, probably a third of the movie was f- in flashback yeah. to show us like the build up and everything that happened. And I like that, but I also think like I could, I would have tried to use that time to also build in him um, as, you know, his family's getting sick and things like that. If he, you know, if he wasn't a scientist, I, I love the idea of him not being a scientist and, and having to use the resources that were available at libraries and things like that to sort of build up his knowledge as as his family's getting sick. And then that gives him sort of an arc to like go from your everyday man to f- literally being almost a scientist. And that gives him this like survivor scientist thing. Um, yeah, because you're talking about an arc where a man turns to science for answers and finds them. Which right. isn't, which is, which is a thing. I I like that. That sounds like a story I would want to tell. Um, even if it doesn't necessarily solve all of his problems, he understands more about his situation. He he get he gains knowledge. Um, and yeah, I, de- I definitely like that that part of it. Um, the other thing, uh, we got to figure out what to do with this dog because it slays me every time. Um, <laughs> is there any way we save the dog, or does the dog have to die in every version of the story? To be honest with you, that's the part that people talk about, right? Yeah. So if he wants, like, I, I mean, it's memorable. It's tough. I don't know if it's even honestly pulled off as well as I would have liked to have seen it in the in the, the original novel or in this version of it. I think I liked, if we were going to pick a dog that I like the most, it's the I Am Legend version of the dog where, you know, there's a lot of time spent building, showing that there's a bond there and sort of then it's the, the, the losing the dog has even more weight. Yeah, um, but the movie goes downhill in a hurry after that dog dies, and like he, he's, right. the the character of Robert Neville is way more likable when he has the dog. Um, so that's the trade off of making it so much more of an integrated part. I think if you're going that route, you can't kill the dog. Um, the, if you're gonna kill the dog, I think you have to do more like what this movie did, which was like he met the dog briefly. He had a he had a he had a moment where he felt like I'm gonna have a companion. And then he found out that it was infected and had to die. Um, very cute dog, by the way, in this in this movie mm-hmm. too. Um, you know, so again, it got me. But like, I think if you're gonna have the dog die, you got to go that route because I know a lot of people. And this is something I don't know how much we touched on on the main coverage or not, but a lot of people hated that the dog died in this movie, and we're just like, fuck this yeah. movie. Like, right. and, and there's a long-standing history of like. You know, there's whole websites devoted to does the dog die? <laughs> like people right. will not watch movies well, if it happens. And, and I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm saying people talk about it. I'm not saying it necessarily a good way. I think they talk about it. Um, it can be used as like a cheap shot. It can be used yeah. as like a you want emotional weight in the story, so we're going to kill the dog, and everybody's going to be affected by that. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying it'd be great, but I, I also think what what's the version of the story where we see sort of the dog out on its own trying to survive? after he's died because i think he dies in all versions of this story that's true to to continue the legend well and that's what i was going to say um i feel like if you move the dog's demise towards the end and you have it maybe be more implied 
instead of shown. Yeah. That can help yeah. a little bit with it. Um, you know, if he if he comes to, if he got he if, or if he goes, I don't know. There's there's probably ways to do it. It's tough though. Like you said, there is there is something to be said for like it is an essential part of this story because it's taking away one of the things he holds dear, um, which is important for his character sort of falling apart at the end. Um, so yeah, that that's one of the things. I, I I guess I sympathize with some of the struggles adapting this movie because or this book because there are some things you got you got to weigh and you got to figure out how you're gonna how you're going to portray them um, that are tough. Uh, what about, what about Ruth versus um, I can't remember the name of the character in I am legend, the film, but like this, this different version um, of the woman he interacts with. How did I know you, and you are also mixed on just Ruth in the, in the novel in general. Yeah. Um, do you have a preference for how stuff plays out or do you have a, like a, an idea for something better than all of it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like honestly what's, what's wild is that, maybe the worst version of like the Ruth character is in the I am legend version that we got because you know, it just completely doesn't, it doesn't fit because there's, there's no like ulterior motive to that character. It just shows up to be sort of at risk. And then this version is more close to the novel version, but I think still both like, I just didn't really feel the payoff of introducing Ruth and then, and then showing the society that like she is a part of, and it just I, I think in in all versions like the sort of adding of ruth and and the society does it, the payoff doesn't fit like the setup to me still so all right so here we go i've saying faithfulness not super important for my adaptation of this movie um mm-hmm. i think you have the intelligent monsters but still bestial still terrifying um maybe even more terrifying than we've seen yet um and then i i i think i proposed this in our i am legend film episode but uh, a character of a version of ruth that is a hard-boiled survivor um that he encounters who is a house open out there scrap finding ways by but I, one of the things i like about ruth from the from the book is that she is sort of one of them and not one of them in a way so right. i think you take that character and y- you you make her have some sort of hybridization going on where she is like partly vampiric part part of this other group partly human and she hides that part of herself from robert until it comes out she still have the drama of him finding out that she is she is something else she's not human exactly like him she she's like been been changed in some way um so yeah. I, I think that's a fascinating version of ruth and the drama that plays out there is he has to try and he has to decide if he is going to accept that or not is he okay with this this mutant I guess, uh, which I find interesting. I don't know. I I feel like there's ways to to play with that Ruth character. I do think she's an interesting because like you're not expecting him to see somebody and all of a sudden he does, uh, which is a nice bit of drama. And he brings Mm -hmm. her into his into his bunker. So she's on the inside then. Um, Now, do I want her allied with like some new mutant race of vampires at the end? I don't know. I guess I'm undecided about how this how this this version ends. Uh, Do you have any preferences? Do you want to see him fight back the disease and, you know, uh, kind of like the more hopeful ending we got from I Am Legend, the film? Or do we want to see him get killed and be a martyr and the last the last human dying like we got in this one? I think he I think he dies. I think he has to die. And I like the idea of if like take take the I Am Legend version where he's able to give the Ruth character in that case. I, I can't remember her character's name in the yeah, movie, but give her give her the sort of cure if he is able to find something like that. Um, and have her maybe like escape this organization of people who are chasing after her or, or the, the zombies or whoever it is like in either whatever version 
you know, she maybe if she is this like hard boiled survivor, maybe she gets away with the cure. And then like we're left to think like maybe she'll be able to to use the cure and like, you know, um, or maybe the cure it. is her hybridization. Yeah, like, he's able point. to determine that this is the way to go. Like we have to hybridize with the with the virus. Right. Um, and he dies getting her out of there with, yeah. with the cure. Like she has the cure in a similar way to kind of, I guess, the more hopeful ending in, in I Am Legend. Uh, yeah. Similar but different because you're still not returning back to unchanged uh i like the I, I liked the idea of like a new world order a new world of 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 these other creatures that you get from the book and i think you would you would you would uh maintain that spirit if you would go with the sort of like mutant version but you would get but it's kind of you getting a bit of both because it's better than the like evil animalistic monsters that we're seeing it's this other thing where you are still mostly human but maybe there's just a few things that are different about you that he would have learned through his interact interactions with her so okay yep. there we go i think we've got it man <laughs> all right let's pitch it <laughs> sounds good um all right that's going to be good for i think for our bonus episode um we like doing these little adaptation adjacent things maybe we'll do omega man at some point uh just to round it out um, probably not a pressing, pressing one, but maybe it'll be on the list for if we start running low, <laughs> it could yeah. be one we could do, or if people want it, you know, let us know if we ever hear multiple people saying, Hey, we want this thing, you know, that then it's going to go shoot up the list, uh, for our patrons in particular, if you guys are, are curious about this stuff. So let us know, yeah. um, if you have any other adaptation adjacent or other alternate adaptations for anything we've covered, um, that you would like to hear in these bonus episodes, we're always open to that. Definitely. And I'm sure at some point we'll revisit Vincent Price and maybe a, a better performance because he, you know, he's got all those Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. Yeah. He's got I would uh, love the cover of Poe. We haven't done that yet. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we would definitely do Cronenberg's The Fly, but, you know, yeah. that would that would mean that Vincent Price's uh, version could be a, a bonus episode. Absolutely. It's on the table as a bonus. That's a good point. And I think I, I need to, like, not jump to any conclusions about this guy because I think there are clearly better Vincent Price, Vincent Price movies that I should watch. Uh, other than this, because this is, I think, the first one I've actually seen. You should go check out the scene from from uh, Edward Scissorhands just to remind yourself and be like, okay. yeah, it's totally yeah. him, because he's much much older, obviously, than yeah. Because I've we definitely see here, seen that movie, but man, I don't yeah. remember it. Yeah, very little. Cool. All right, this was fun. Uh, until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>